For those of you who aren't aware, Jim is in Colombia this week, the country, not the city. Um, I was confused about that the first time he told me that. He's actually there uh, with Compassion International, which probably a number of you in here sponsor children through Compassion International, and uh, Jim has for some time, but also I think kind of as a as a bit of a representative, someone who kind of pastors a church where we've put some emphasis on that before in the past. I think they wanted him to come kind of see some of the stuff that was going on down there. So he'll be back uh, Saturday evening, I believe, and of course we'll be in the pulpit Sunday morning ready to go and preach uh, because that's just how Jim does life. Uh, so, so anyway, I, that means that I get to be with you in 2 Timothy tonight as we really, you, you kind of started with some introductory stuff last week and, and did the first couple verses, but I, I get to really jump us into the text together. A uh, couple things, just kind of refresher for those of you who either weren't here or, or were here, but just kind of to get reminded, this is uh, Paul's more than likely very last letter that he ever wrote. Um, wrote this from prison, we believe, in Rome in the mid-60s, uh, knowing pretty much that the end is near for him, that he is facing execution. And so he writes this last final letter. It is uh, easily probably the most personal letter you'll see in, in all of Paul's writings. Uh, Philemon gets there a little bit, uh, but, but the stuff he, he talks about with Timothy, the fact he mentions by name 22 different people in here just sounds like friends corresponding about friends and about enemies and all of those things. Uh, it is, it is, it's just a deeply personal letter and, and kind of a, in some ways a really neat thing for us to get to read these thoughts of Paul in, in some of the last days perhaps of his life. He will write to Timothy to ask, uh, to, to encourage him and exhort him to, to stay true to the faith and to stay true to his calling in ministry and to lead well. And, and he'll also practically be asking for Timothy to come see him one last time before he's done. He probably has some things he wants to share with him, but he also wants to just see Timothy um, again before, before it's all over. Um, I want to do this. Let's, let's pray real quick, and then we will jump into the text itself. Dear Father in heaven, you are good to us. You are good in the um, revealing of yourself through your word. I pray that we would not take for granted or take lightly that truth that you, the eternal one, unapproachable, um, chose to make yourself known to us. Um, Give us joy in that. Give us hunger for more of that, to see you and know you in your word. But I pray you would speak through me tonight, um, that your word would convict us, that it would challenge us, that it would encourage us, and uh, ultimately, Lord, that it would change us. I pray for Jim as he's in Columbia, that you would speak to him there, speak to him about your heart for that place. And, and use him to be a blessing and encouragement to the people that, that he's there with. I pray for our team in Mexico, um, Piedras, that, that you would use them to be an encouragement and, and a strengthening to our brothers and sisters there. And, uh, and that your kingdom would come and your will would be done in both of those places, also in Stillwater as it is in heaven. I ask you this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. Thank <laughs> you. 
1 Timothy 1, you did the introduction. I'll go ahead and read it for you from last week. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. The introduction into his letter. Um, what you'll see in our text tonight, we're going to finish out the rest of chapter one. Uh, what you'll see is that this kind of divides itself out, breaks down into three different movements. And so what I want to do is I want to kind of read each movement as a whole, and then we'll step back and, and go through that movement verse by verse. So here's the first, verses three through five. I thank God, whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. Uh, Paul's common practice in almost every one of his letters, I, there's only three I know of uh, that he doesn't do this, but in, in almost every one of his letters is to start with a thanksgiving. This is why I thank God for you. Now, it's interesting, two of the other letters that he doesn't do it in, one is 2 Corinthians, which he kind of already gave the thanksgiving in 1 Corinthians. The other two that he doesn't do it in are the pastoral epistles in 1 Timothy and in Titus. In both of those, and I don't know, I'm just taking a shot in the dark that it could be, in all these other letters, he wants these people to know that he feels a personal connection to them and, and that he is personally grateful for them uh, actually, sorry, there is one other that he doesn't start with a Thanksgiving, and that is the book of Galatians. Um, he goes um, kind of straight into a tail whooping in Galatians. He doesn't waste a whole lot of time, and so he jumps right into that. But in, in, in 1 Timothy and Titus, I, I kind of wonder if there's no need to kind of... Uh, to form a personal connection, to make sure that he cares about them. They know that already. And so he kind of goes straight into the instructions. But 2 Timothy, this being, again, Paul probably knows his very last letter and, and may get to be the last thing he ever says to Timothy. If, if Timothy can't make it by wintertime, uh, if he doesn't make it in time, this might be the last stuff that Paul gets to say to him. And he includes this thanksgiving in here, a, a pretty personal one. Look at verse 3 again. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. There is this interesting extra little aside or comment that gets thrown in there. I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience. He says this, as did my ancestors, uh, linking himself back to uh, early, early Jewish ancestors, particularly probably those in the Old Testament. As we read through this book, what you'll see is it appears that some of the false teachers that Paul is writing against and is trying to encourage Timothy to fight against are, are misusing, perhaps in some way, the Old Testament, misusing some laws in there. And, and so when Paul says, I serve God with a clear conscience, just like my ancestors, it sounds like he's probably trying to make it clear that his ministry and his teaching is the true continuation of everything that Moses taught and that Elijah taught 
and that Abraham first received from God, that this is the continuation of the scriptures, of the Old Testament scriptures given to the Jewish people so long ago. Verse four, as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. We already saw in the intro, he he calls Timothy his beloved child. And here we get another sense of the closeness between these two, that the last time they parted, uh, it was parting over, over tears. They wept through that. And Paul thinks back on that and longs to be able to see Timothy again, to, to have his joy filled up at the sight of getting to see his son in the faith one more time. Um, and we'll see that this verse right here, I long to see you again, it, it really kind of sums up one of, as I said, the purposes in the letter, which is an encouragement to Timothy to please come to me. I long to see you again. I can't wait, and it would fill up my joy. It would fill me up with that. Verse 5, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. Paul will be pleading with Timothy in this book for a steadfastness in his faith. Cling to the truths that I passed on to you. Cling to the faith. Cling to the sound teaching. And it makes sense that Paul would start by reminding Timothy of his roots. It's a way of saying, uh, by the way, what you are believing in runs runs further than just you, runs further back. This goes one generation, two generations back in your family. This is, this is who you are. This flows from, from your family and into you. Cling true to this. Stay true to those roots, Timothy. This statement about uh, Timothy's mom, that she is a believer, just like his grandmother, is actually confirmed to us in Acts 16.1 when Paul gets to Lystra. This is on his second time around, so he's made his first missionary journey where he stopped at Lystra and shared the gospel. On his second time around, in the very first verse, it says he gets there and he meets a young disciple there by the name of Tenneth. Timothy, whose mother was a Jewish woman woman who happened to be a believer. And so Luke tells us the same thing here that Paul mentions in the front of 2 Timothy. Now, if you'll notice, Paul has already, in, this, in, in these three verses, he's already used this idea of remember three times. I remember you constantly in my prayers. I remember the tears uh, that, I remember the tears that were in uh, that, that you had when we parted. And then he says this, uh, that I, I uh, let me see, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, the faith that dwelled in you. So he's, he's used this idea of remembering three times and now he's gonna use that actually to springboard into verse six, which we just read a bit ago, which says, for this reason, I remind you. Now he says, I've remembered three things. Now let me remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Um, this is starting to move us into the meat of our text and, and we'll in just a bit see some of the main imperatives. But what it appears is in, as we move into this meat that, that Paul actually opens this section in verse six with a reference to the Holy Spirit or verse seven there. And he's gonna close it in verse 14 with a reference to the Holy Spirit sandwiching on both sides, the Spirit's power. Um, he says to Timothy, I remind you to fan into flame the gift that you have been given. You may remember from last semester, Paul has given Timothy almost identical instructions in his previous letter. In 1 Timothy 4.14 says this, 
Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. So Paul has actually given this same instruction to him, and he seems to be referencing the same thing, the gift that, that you received in the laying on of hands. Now, in 2 Timothy, he doesn't say all the elders, which is, by the way, probably talking about his ordination. Uh, when all the elders laid his hands on, Paul just reminds specifically that I was there. I was laying my hands on you. Remember my part in this. Um, we're not told what specifically this gift is that Paul is talking about, it, but it does seem to be connected with Timothy's calling into ministry because it was either, and, and we don't know exactly, recognized by his elders at his ordination when they laid hands on him. So they recognized this gift in him and then uh, ordained him into ministry or the text actually seems to indicate given to him in the laying on of hands as they prophesied over him this specific gift for his ministry, for his calling to this service at that time. Um, notice this, that the gift is, and this is true with everywhere else we see in Scripture, that the gift is from God. It's something that was given at the laying on of hands. It is given through the Holy Spirit. And yet, Paul, Paul indicates that there is human cooperation necessary in that gift. Um, that it's not as simple as just God gives the gift and now everything takes care of itself. Paul says to Timothy, you are responsible for fanning into flame, for stoking the fire for that, for building and growing that in you for use in the kingdom. Um, and here is Paul's, uh, Paul says, here's the motivation for that. Verse 7, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. These two verses verses 6 through 7 seem to line up with what we learn about Timothy in other places in the scriptures. And that is that Timothy is a younger man, somewhat young and, and uh, I don't know if you want to say new, fairly new compared to Paul to the ministry. But, but also it appears that he is a, definitely a less forceful personality than Paul, a less strong personality. The phrase, timid Timothy, sometimes gets used to describe him. Uh, a man who, who's not quite as, well, I don't want to say gung-ho, because we, we see from other areas that Timothy is definitely passionate about the kingdom. He is passionate about the gospel and the church, uh, but, but maybe lacks the boldness sometimes, lacks the, uh, the chutzpah, if you will, to, to really kind of throw himself out in front of people and, and needs to be reminded, hey, fan your gift into flame, lead well, and, and Paul even goes so far to say, him, to say to him, for God did not give us a spirit of timidity. The fear that you feel inside of you, that cannot be of the spirit because God didn't give us a spirit like that. What God gave to you, Timothy, is power and love and self-control through the spirit um, he says this, and, and by the way, if, if you're reading in ESV there, you'll see spirit is not capitalized, it's lowercase, and that's because in the Greek, there's not a definite article, and, and so some people think that he's not actually talking about the Holy Spirit, he's talking just about kind of a spirit, an overall attitude, or an overall um, ability of power, love, and self-discipline. I, I tend to think that he is actually talking about the Holy Spirit. There are other times in Paul's writing where the definite article, the, isn't in there before spirit, and he's still talking about the Holy Spirit. And when Paul uses this word power, 
not always, but often, the word is dunamis, from which, where we get the word dynamite from. Uh, when Paul mentions this word power, it is often linked to the Holy Spirit. He's given us this, this power from the Holy Spirit. Love, actually, is often linked to the Holy Spirit in Paul as well. So when he says he's given you a spirit of power and love and self-control, um, I believe that he is referring to the Holy Spirit that has been put in him. Now, it's this truth. Paul says, you have the Spirit that gives you power and love and self-control. And that truth right there is what's going to move us into Paul's kind of two-part imperative, which is the main command that he has for him in chapter one that he wants him to see. I'm going to read, uh, I'm going to go ahead and read all the way from eight through 11 because eight through 11 is one sentence in the Greek. This is all one long sentence. It says, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher." That is a long sentence right there. Um, running all together, Paul gets started on this kind of command, which leads him to start talking about the gospel, which leads him to start kind of explaining a little bit of his gospel. He does this kind of thing sometimes when he gets an idea. He'll just kind of continue on talking in that. Um, from time to time, or from the very time that God called Paul in Acts 9 on the road to Damascus, we see this sentence. I want to say, I was listening to a, Jim's teaching last week, and I think that he, he actually referenced this. When, Paul show, or when God speaks to Ananias and says, I want you to go to this man named Saul, and I want you to lay hands on him and pray for him, Ananias says, I don't want to do that. I've heard about this guy. He's scary. And, and God says, go. I'm going to use him. And then God says, and I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Not, not as a punishment, but just the way this is how, this is how, this is what his life is going to look like. That Paul's is going to be a life of suffering. And from the time that that statement was made, at the very beginning of Paul's calling, not just to ministry, but to God himself, um, he's kind of recognized that suffering is going to be associated with faithfulness. For him to be faithful to God is going to be suffering. And now Paul sits in a prison for probably he knows the last time awaiting his probable execution under Nero. And he wants Timothy to come visit him. Um, this, in an honor-shame culture, like the Greco-Roman and Jewish world of the first century, um, this idea of being associated with a crucified criminal as your Lord and master, and then a imprisoned political, yeah, a political prisoner or whatever who's constantly imprisoned or beaten or put in chains for his teaching as kind of that Messiah's main messenger, that would carry with it a certain stigma. There is something, something that we don't, I, I don't have the ability to convey or even get my mind around the shame that was associated with crucifixion. When, when uh, Roman writers would say things like the word should not even be mentioned at the dinner table. It's just not polite. 
It's just not good. And, and the idea that something like that would ever happen to a Roman citizen would just be crazy. It should not happen to a Roman citizen. They were too good only for like the slaves, only for the worst of the worst, the lowest of the low um, could, could receive that. And in an honor-shame culture, that would have been so... Uh, silly is not a strong enough word. Shameful probably is the best word. To be devoting your life to a man who died on a cross. That's why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians that we preach Christ crucified, which is foolishness to the Gentiles. <laughs> if, if you're even going to follow that person, which you never should, but if you're going to, don't talk about it. Don't preach about it. Don't boast about it. That's shameful, and, and the idea that you would give your life to that, which Paul has done, and then Paul has often end up, ended up in prison himself, would create this stigma with a lot of people, and as we will see, there is a lot of people that were not willing to put up with that, that were not willing to bear that stigma. They could not, they couldn't really get their minds around being too closely associated with a man like Paul. Uh, even those who wanted to call themselves Christians, at least initially. Um, and so Paul says to Timothy, but I want you to. I want you to come visit me, which means you are going to associate yourself with me. To, to come be with me says you agree, says you are one of my companions, says that you believe the things I believe, and, and it could put you could put you in a little bit of harm's way, but he says, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Share in suffering. And so um, he seems to charge to me. I think, I think when he says share in suffering, he, he, he might really even mean that may be just his way of saying, come on, come see me. Come be ready to share in this. And, and where a lot of people, will, again, we see in First and Second Corinthians, there are a number of people who even question the legitimacy of Paul's apostleship. Because if a guy's really serving God um, and really devoted to God and really pleasing God, then why in the world does he end up in so much trouble all the time? Like you'd think if, if he was on God's side, things would work out better for him. And, and so some people seem to question the, legitimate, the legitimacy of it, those who were Christians, and then, of course, non-Christians would have thought he was ridiculous for giving himself to this crucified Messiah, but he charges Timothy to remain loyal to him and to stick with him. But he says this, um, but do it by the power of God. You can, you can share in the suffering by the power of God who saved us um, and called us to a holy calling. In verse 9 here, what he's doing, he's just mentioned the gospel um, suffer for the gospel, and, and that leads him into kind of talking about what the gospel is. So he says, the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Um, just, just kind of an interesting aside, and I still don't even know what to do with it. We use the term, when we talk about calling, we almost always use that to talk vocationally or to talk about kind of a life purpose. And, and even, even at some even actually up here, I've used that term two or three times already to talk about Timothy's calling to ministry. And when we talk on Sunnybrook staff a lot, we talk about we want to, we want to try and seek what God has us, what he wants us to do, what his calling is, is in our lives and then obey it. Um, one thing that actually as I've started to read and study, I find that 
I don't think Paul ever actually uses it like that. Almost every time the word calling comes up in the New Testament, it's not about a calling into a specific vocation or or a specific task, but the calling to be one of God's people. It's almost always called into eternal life, called into the family of God. I, I honestly don't even have a point to make there. I don't know. I don't, maybe, Paul would, maybe Paul would link those. Maybe Paul would say, hey, you're not wrong to use calling to talk about a life purpose. And the truth is, every person who is called into the family of God is at that very moment called into ministry is at that very moment given a purpose for their life. That is their calling now, is servant of the Messiah. Um, That's the way he talks about it uh, frequently. This is the way he talks about it here, who called us to a holy calling. We'll see a couple of Pauline ideas here. First, um, that we are, that God called us not because of anything we've done, not because of our goodness, not because of our background, not because of our ability to adhere to the law or to follow the ceremonial rites that marks a person as Jewish, circumcision and, and, and dietary restrictions and festival days. None of that, he says, but because of his own purpose and his grace, his undeserved grace. Um, second, we see this, that Paul says that this grace has been God's plan all along. It says, um, verse 9, that he called, uh, but it was because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Before the ages, before time began, he gave this grace. This is, um, like I said, a, a, a theme that kind of comes up in Paul a lot in Titus 1-2. Paul talks about the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. 1 Corinthians 2.7 says, But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. In the same way that I think Paul likes to link his message and his life to the Old Testament. And he says, I serve God with a clear conscience, as did my ancestors. He wants to show that this is a continuation of something before. Paul likes to do this with the gospel and with the idea of grace too and say, by the way, that goes back even before the ancestors. That goes back like grace and this calling of a people based on nothing that they have done. Um, That idea precedes Uh, Abraham, that idea precedes Noah, that idea precedes Adam himself. Grace was not a plan B. It was never a, this whole um, Old Testament covenant and law didn't work out, so let's try something else. Before the ages began, God had this in mind and had his church in mind as a people who would belong to him, and he was ready to extend that to us. Um, Notice the subtle encouragement in this truth. Listen to what he says about Jesus. He says that, the grace was, was set apart. It was ready before the ages began. And then verse 10, and which now has been manifested, that is, we just saw it, though, through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Um, I think, there, I think there, there might be a purpose in his making that statement there. He's telling Timothy, I want you to stand up on behalf of the gospel, and I want you to come visit me, and both of those are going to be very big risks, risks, and both of those may cost you dearly. But just know, he says, you are serving a king who has done away with death. You are, you are doing it in the service of Jesus who has 
put away death and brought life and immortality to light. In other words, what more do you have to fear, Timothy? Like, what can anyone really do to us that is going to, that is going to harm us more than the loss of our life? And, and in the loss of our life, we have nothing to fear because Jesus has done away with it. He's brought immortality to light through the gospel. It goes on 11 and 12. For which I, this is the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Though Paul is suffering, though he is in prison, Paul says, by the way, there are a lot of people who might be kind of ashamed of me. There are a lot of people who are kind of embarrassed about this uh, Messiah whose crucifixion I keep bragging about. And, And the fact that I keep getting thrown in prison. Just so you know, I'm not embarrassed. Just so you know, like, I'm fine. It might make you nervous, Timothy. It's certainly made a lot of other people kind of squeamish. doesn't bother me. And the reason why is because I know the person that I'm doing this for. And I trust him. I know that he is trustworthy. I know that he is faithful. I know that he is able to take care of me. And he says this, to guard, I know that, uh, I know whom I have believed and I'm convinced that he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. The question here is, what is it that Paul is talking about? He says, I trust that God can guard what's been entrusted to me. What is that? What is it that, that God is able to trust or to, to guard? You should know it doesn't actually say there in the Greek to guard what he has entrusted to me. It literally says in the Greek to guard my deposit. That's all it says. To be able to guard my deposit. And so um, we don't know actually if, if he means that that what, it, what, what this thing is has been entrusted to Paul or not. Actually, um, your footnote may say, and I believe that this is a better translation, to guard what I have entrusted to him. Uh, some people think the reason the, reason the ESV and some others translate it, um, that God is able to guard what he has entrusted to me is because we're going to see in just a few verses, verse 14, this exact same word deposit is used to talk about Timothy And he tells Timothy, guard the deposit that is entrusted to you. And so people read it and they go, oh, the deposit is something that gets entrusted to people. So Timothy should guard it because it's entrusted to him and and it's also entrusted to Paul. Uh, But the, the difference is this. If you look at verse 14, Timothy is in charge of that one. But who's in charge of Paul's deposit? God. God is going to guard this. And I think that Paul is talking about his own life his own soul. He says, God holds that in his hand. And that doesn't mean that I'm going to be safe. That doesn't mean that I'm going to come out of this thing all right physically, but I know that he's got my life in his hands and that he's going to take care of me. And in the long run, when that day comes, that great and final day, I'll be fine. I trust him in that, that he's, he's reliable in this. Um, verses 13 through 14 say this, Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So here Timothy is told to guard that deposit. Um, The good deposit in this verse 14 is the sound teaching. So the gospel truth that I passed on to you, the faith that I conveyed to you and the doctrines of that, 
guard that carefully. Yes, there are false teachers springing up in Ephesus. It is your job to protect the truth, um, to keep a lock on it as it is being entrusted to you. And you'll see in a little bit, he said, he'll, he'll tell Timothy, and now it's your job to, as it's been entrusted to you, entrust to others. He'll go on to say, um, I think that's next week's chapter. Um, there is a pattern, though, that has emerged here, and I don't know if you've seen it, with, with all of the little commands that Paul has given to Timothy, what, what it gets followed up by. Don't know if you've noticed it yet. We'll talk about it here in just a little bit. But first, let me read 15 through 18. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. So after calling Timothy to sacrifice and to be loyal and to be faithful, Paul says, by the way, I know you know this, there are a whole lot of people who haven't. There's a whole lot of people who have chosen not to be faithful, who have not been loyal, who have not been willing to sacrifice. And, and he says, you know that, that actually all who are in Asia turned away from me. And he even lists names here, Vigelis and Hermogenes. We don't know exactly what Paul is talking about here when he says that all in Asia turned away from me. But we do know that Asia is, the, the province of Asia or Asia Minor is where Ephesus is. So he, he's probably talking about all those in the region where you're working, where you reside, have fallen away from me. Meaning, that, So there are probably two possible outcomes. One is that there are a group of Christians who came to Rome to maybe support or help Paul in his ministry. But when Paul was imprisoned, um, they bailed on him and said, ah, this is more than we signed up for. And so they headed back to Asia. Or he may be saying, actually, that they never actually left to go to Rome. He's not talking about a trip, per se, but that these people have actually abandoned the faith that Paul gave to them, that they've, that they've kind of, uh, yeah, abandoned ship, that they've jumped overboard and just said, we don't, we don't want anything else to do this or to do with this. But, Paul says, he says everyone, but, but not necessarily everyone. There is at least this one guy, and we'll see later he'll talk about a guy named Tychicus who's stayed with him there in Rome. So he, he's kind of using some exaggeration here, but specifically he mentions there is this one guy, Onesiphorus, that Timothy knows. And he mentions uh, Onesiphorus as an example of faithfulness. Uh, I never actually, uh, well, let me, let me look, at, look at what he uses to describe him at first. Um, may the Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. And, and that word, ashamed, has come up multiple times now. Paul says, don't you be ashamed, Timothy. Paul says, just so you know, I'm not ashamed, Timothy. And just so you know, Onesiphorus wasn't either. And he was willing to come here and refresh me. Now, in, in, in prisons back then, most of the time, like, uh, you survived by self-sustenance. That is, there wasn't like a government program to provide meals for all the people in prison. You ate because friends or family brought you meals to eat in prison. That's by probably the, the way it works. When he says Onesiphorus refreshed me, I think he means more than just like, man, it was really good to see that guy. I think there was a little bit of that. He cheered me up some, but, but probably he means like fed me. 
fed me, brought me drink, gave, brought me clothes, those kinds of things to take care of. Um, and again, Onesiphorus kind of puts himself on the line a little bit, uh, associating himself with Paul. One commentator notes, and I don't know how I've never noticed this, but, but honestly, the way this reads uh, sounds actually like Onesiphorus has recently died, perhaps in, in, the, in his service to Paul. For one, we see him say, may the, he doesn't say, may the Lord bless Onesiphorus and his household. What does he say? May the Lord bless Onesiphorus' household. Now, he will talk about may the Lord have mercy on Onesiphorus, but when, when is he anticipating that? On that day, on that final day. So, so a present mercy on the household of Onesiphorus, and may there be a future mercy on him when that day comes, when he stands before God. And so um, it appears that that one of the companions that Paul has looked to, one who has stood by his side and been trusted with him, has actually recently lost his life and possibly even in the, in the act of serving Paul and traveling back and forth. And so um, this would have been a difficult time, but, but Paul wants to lift him up as an example to Timothy and say, this guy's stuck with me, you can do it too. Um, I have always, and then we've kind of made our way through the text, I'll just share, I, I have, I've always identified with Timothy a little bit, that I've always felt um, sometimes when I'm reading these letters to him, like I can maybe plug my name in there in a couple places, and there's a few different reasons for that. One is that, uh, I don't know if I can still qualify myself as this anymore or not, but I think so. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a young minister, someone who is, who is young in their ministry and, and still kind of probably has many years ahead of them. And so still, honestly, after 10 years, um, figuring out the ropes sometimes, feeling like I'm working my way through this. And so I can, I can identify with Timothy as a young man thrown into stuff that maybe sometimes he feels like is bigger than he has the ability to deal with or cope with. Um, I, I also have been fortunate to be blessed with a legacy of faith like Timothy. That my, I'm not a first generation Christian, that, that a, a commitment to Jesus and his kingdom runs generations back in my family. And, and I'm fortunate for that. And I've been blessed by that. And, and that has really been a strength to me a lot as, as I believe it probably was for Timothy as well. But maybe more than anything, I find myself being like uh, Timothy because I, I've never been one myself to have much of a forceful personality. Um, to be super, I don't have the, the Jim Johnson strong, um, the, yeah, depending on what angle you want to talk about, strong to some, stubborn to others, um, forceful to some, you know, overbearing to others, you know, however you want to describe it. That's, that's never fully been me, and I've honestly envied that in Jim a lot, um, wishing I could have a personality more like that. It's just not necessarily me. I have in the past needed, much like Timothy, um, to be encouraged to fan my gifts into flame, that, that gifts that God has given me for his purposes and for his ministry that I have sometimes struggled to, to trust 
or, or to even have enough boldness to want to use. And I've needed some people sometimes, like Jim Johnson, to push me on in those things. And it advanced me forward. And, and maybe more than any of that, I know that just like Timothy, I can have a tendency to operate out of a, a spirit of fear sometimes and a spirit of timidity. Um, I tend to naturally want to avoid difficult and hard things. Um, that if there is an easier way, if there, is a, if there is a way that doesn't require quite as much pain or hardship or difficulty or suffering, then, then I naturally lean towards wanting to take that. And I naturally try to avoid those paths that might be difficult sometimes. But Paul, Paul makes pretty clear that this is not really much of an option for the Christian life. The path of least resistance just, just doesn't really coincide very much with the Christian life. Not just in here, like in 2 Timothy 1.8, which we read, where Paul says to Timothy, share in suffering with me. But in other places, later in this book, we're going to see Paul say in 2 Timothy 3.12, whoever wants to live a godly life will be persecuted. In Acts 14, when he's making his way around to some of the churches that he's been ministering to them, he'll say this, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, Paul says, if our hope in Christ is for this life alone, we are to be pitied more than all men. And he says that because, because to Paul, this life is not going to be an easy one for him. He knows that, that, that the Christian life is, can be so difficult, so strenuous, so hard, that if there's nothing on the other side of this, if there is no resurrection, then we are to be pitied for selling out our lives to something like this. And so Paul has, from, as I mentioned, from the time he first received his calling and in all his writings, Paul associates the Christian life with one of difficulty. He wants his followers, including Timothy, to know that the Christian life entails sacrifice. And it entails sacrifice because the one we follow lived a life of sacrifice. It just makes sense to Paul. If this is the way it worked for Jesus, this is the way it's going to work for his followers. That's what Jesus said. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. And Paul saw that to be true and lived that kind of life and expected that his followers would be willing and ready to live that kind of life as well. But um, Paul never seems to say that, that we do this just because Jesus did Paul never seems to call Timothy or others to hardship just for the sake of hardship. Just because, well, it's, you know, it's good for you to go through hard stuff and that's just what, that's just what we're going to do and that's just how things are going to work. No, Paul always sees something bigger at work in it. We were teaching through Romans 5 at the table um, this last Thursday and there's this really interesting passage in Romans 5 where Paul talks about rejoicing in suffering. Um, he says, um, verse 3, chapter Romans 5, starting in verse 3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, there's that word again, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paul says, we suffer because that's what Jesus did. 
And if he calls us into a life like his, then it's going to entail hardship. But he says we also suffer because in suffering, we become the kind of people that we are supposed to be. We become more like Jesus in that. We get to experience, so he says, suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and then that character will put in us the same kind of hope and joy that Jesus had. That we get to experience that when we suffer like him. I was uh, reading from, I don't know if I put it in here or not. Uh, Yeah, this is a a word, uh, a quote I saw from a, a writer by the name of Preston Sprinkle, who I follow some of his stuff. He says this, when God calls us to salvation, he calls us to partake in his son's suffering so that we can also partake in his son's joy. When God called you to be a Christian, he called you to partake in suffering so that you could also partake in his son's joy. This seems to be the calling consistent through scripture. Another word that I, I, I'm finding helpful recently is this word risk, called to a life of risk. And here's why I think that's helpful in our context is because um, I don't know if I can say that suffering is always a guarantee in America in the Western world today. It's not like it was in the first century where preaching Jesus and staying up could get you thrown in prison. It doesn't necessarily work that way. And so uh, I don't know that I can just say, hey, if you're a Christian, then you're going to experience suffering. But um, risk makes sense to me. I I do believe that that risk fits because um, suffering is not a guarantee in our context, but living in a way that constantly shelters us from it that constantly shelters us from the possibility of suffering, that works counter to the Christian life. And so I can't guarantee that you'll suffer. I can tell you if you live your life in a way that keeps you from ever having to worry about suffering, then you're not going to be able to live the Christian life very well. When it comes to things like sharing the gospel with your neighbor, um, words preached to Drew right now, I'm sorry, man, but you got to be willing to risk and recognize that it might be embarrassing. When they laugh in your face or when they want nothing else to do with you or they consider you weird or whatever it may be, like I, I can't protect you from that, Drew, and just say, well, just don't risk it if it might be difficult. When, when it means um, standing with integrity in your workplace to the point that it might cost you your job, like this is the risk entailed with being faithful to Jesus, and those things might happen. It means that we do not protect ourselves necessarily from deep relationships that might end up being hurtful or harmful for us. Because the life Jesus lived was not a life of self-protection. It was not a life of guarding himself from things that might pop up and make life hard or difficult. It was a life that was open and ready to serve and love and minister and that would cost him and that very well may cost us sometimes when it comes to things like our money to live our lives in a way so that we are never ever at a point of risk or of need in God is going to work counter to the way that God calls us to live. So I can't tell you that you have to go out. I I don't even know if I can say 100% Paul's words in 2 Timothy 3. Everyone who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted. I think that was probably true for the most part in the first century. I don't know if it's true today. But I do think this is true. Everyone who wants to live a godly life will risk hardship, will risk suffering. 
that it will come with the territory for a little bit. And, and if you are like me, that's hard. Uh, I, think it's hard for, I think it's hard for all of us to some extent. You re- recognize, I just always think of it this way, that for most of human history, if you had a, a really bad headache, you know what you did? You just had a headache, right? If, if you hurt something, you know what happened? It just hurt for a long time. Like it's a fairly new phenomenon that like when something hurts, we can pop a couple pills and take care of that like that. Um, for most of human history, like pain or difficulty or suffering was just kind of what happened. If the rain didn't come in, you know what you did? You didn't go down to the grocery store and just buy other food anyway. You had to find a way to survive on little to no food. It's just the way it worked. And, and in our modern world, I am so grateful for this that we have not had to deal with that kind of discomfort and suffering. But it makes the idea of it so repulsive to us. We are so not used to dealing with uncomfortable things or, or hardship or pain in any way that it is easy for us to run from it. It is easy for us to build our lives around avoiding it in a lot of ways. And so I think that's true for all Americans. Um, for all people living in the Western world, but I I know that it's true for me. And I know that that is even more than just an American Western thing, that that is a bit of a timid Timothy thing in me that does not want to disappoint people, that does not want to anger people, that does not want to put myself in awkward positions a lot of times. Um, I don't know if that's you or not. Um, I don't know if if that thought of sharing the gospel with, with your neighbor or standing up for truth in the workplace or um, being generous with your money or your relationships or whatever it may be if, if you just get nervous about that sometimes the way I do. Um, but if so, I, I want to, in the last couple of minutes, just give you a little bit of hope for timid Timothys like me. Um, I mentioned that there's a pattern that's playing its way through this text as we read through it. And, uh, and, and I don't know if you picked it up or not, but that is that in almost every place where Paul talks about a command, he follows it up with a means for obeying that. So verse six, Paul says this to Timothy, you ought to fan into flame the gift that God has given you. And here's why. Because God gave us his spirit of power. This is why you can do that. Because God didn't put fear in you. You don't have to be afraid. That's, that's actually probably a good principle for us to keep in mind. It is good to be right, or I'm sorry, it is good to be cautious sometimes. It is good to be concerned of things or to be discerning about things, but um, anytime we are operating, that we are making decisions in our life based on fear, we can know that that's not from the Spirit because God, because Paul says, that's not what God put in you. God put in you a spirit of power. So he says to Timothy, fan into flame your gift. Get ready to lead. Get ready to step up and minister to people. And here's why you can do that, because the spirit of God is inside of you. You may not have the same forceful personality as me, Timothy, but you do have the same spirit. And so you're able to do this. In verse eight, he says, share with me in suffering for the gospel. How? By the power of God. God enables you to do this, Timothy. Verse 12, Paul says, the reason that he's not ashamed is because I know whom I have believed. In other words, the reason Paul is able to face this without shame is because God himself is trustworthy and reliable. And in verse 14, 
Timothy is commanded to guard the sound teaching that has been entrusted to him. How? By the Holy Spirit. So in every place where Paul calls Timothy to something difficult or hard in this text, recognizing that Timothy's own personality and his own human nature may not be sufficient for the task, Paul wants to come in and remind Timothy that it is not dependent on him, that he is able to do these things. He is able to lead well and use his gifts well because the Holy Spirit is at work in him. He is able to suffer and risk shame and hardship. Why? Because the power of God is at work in him. And he is able to guard the good deposit. He is able to guard the sound teaching by the Holy Spirit. And Paul always comes back to this. His encouragement is that this God who calls us to sacrifice also enables us to. The very God that wants you to risk sacrifice enables you to do that thing. And not only that, but he says, this is the very God who has brought life and immortality to life. What can they do to us? What can my neighbor do to me? What can my coworkers do to me when I, am, when I, I have committed myself to one who is trustworthy, to one who has abolished death and brought it to nothing? I think I can say along with Paul, I have no need to be ashamed because I know the one that I've trusted. I know that he's able to guard what I've entrusted to him, myself. And, and what can man do to me that is bigger than that, that is heavier than that? Um, I don't know if you're me, but I do know that you're human. And so the, the call to suffer, the call to hardship, the call to risk does, does not come natural to us. But I also know that the God who calls us to do so enables us to do so. And I pray that you will find his strength and power in doing those things. Let me pray for both you and myself that that would be the case in our lives this week. Father, you know the way that... Um, you know the way that even as I prepare teaching this text... Um, there's part of me that just doesn't like it because <laughs> I just don't like the emphasis on this, this not being ashamed and a willingness to, to share in suffering with, with you and with your followers and because I'm afraid that I'm going to read it and teach it and then go on and try to ignore it. And I'm sorry for that heart in me. Um, Lord, we are weak. We are weak and, and so often just desire comfort. So often just desire what is easy and, and, and convenient for us. And I pray that you would give us this grace to break us from that, to break us from our addiction to comfort. Um, that you would call into mind the Holy Spirit that you put in us that gives us power and love and self-control that, that gives us the ability to live from boldness and from courage and not from fear. Um, may we leave this week with a desire to, to risk for you and for your kingdom and trusting that the ability is given to us in the name of Jesus by his Holy Spirit. And I pray this in the name of Jesus for us. Amen.